Welcome to the Life and Times of Video Games, a new documentary podcast about the history and culture of video games. My name is Richard Moss, and this is episode one, Race to the Bottom. In March 2008, during an iPhone media event at Apple headquarters in Cupertino, California, CEO Steve Jobs set the tech industry abuzz with news that pretty soon, like in just a few months, Apple would open its mobile platform to third-party software. To apps that ran directly on the iPhone hardware, just like the ones built into iPhone OS. Made by developers who don't work for Apple, and companies that aren't owned by Apple. Like AOL, which was set to release an app for using its popular instant messaging service. Or Sega, who were making a version of the arcade game Super Monkey Ball that used the iPhone's built-in accelerometer to let you guide your spherically bound monkey around levels by tilting your device. Or anybody else willing to pay a $99 a year fee to be part of the iPhone developer program. It sounded like a big deal. And it was. Although this wasn't exactly clear at the time to anyone who actually followed the mobile industry. Apple had made fast inroads, snapping up 28% of the smartphone market and 71% of mobile web browser usage in the US in just eight months of iPhone sales. But the iPhone was small fry in light of Nokia's domination of both the smartphone and feature phone markets. Here's John Jordan, one of the co-founders of Pocket Gamer, a mobile-centric game site launched in 2005. People don't remember Nokia had its own store around the same time called OV Store. You know, um, there was Sony Ericsson was another company making handsets and making stores was not, it was technically... um, hard but it wasn't rocket science so apple coming up with this with an app store wasn't didn't appear to be changing the industry in the way that we would now look back in you know you talk to anyone in the mobile games industry and they would go the one thing that changed the mobile games industry was the app store you know at the time that was not an obvious thing and while it's easy to credit the iphone with the popularization of mobile gaming there was in fact an established profitable mobile games market well before apple came along app retailing you know our business model at that point was was covering um you know java games so java was the in europe was the technology you had to make games and then download them in the states you had brew which was kind of qualcomm's equivalent you know and, that, and those were very kind of limited technologies in a sense of how the, how those they had app stores but how those were run was very limited and um, they were run by the the mobile phone operators, so Vodafone's, T-Mobile's, those kind of people were, were, were running the content. However, Apple was doing things differently. They were taking some of the power away from the carriers. Come June, ordinary iPhone users the world over would be able to use a built-in app called the App Store to buy and download apps. And with the exception of maybe the occasional region-locked app, there'd be no difference in App Store experience between users. Apple had already shaken up the music industry with its iTunes Store, which standardized pricing of MP3s and let people buy any song from any album without having to also buy the album. And the App Store had some of that same anti-establishment DNA. Let's stick it to those mobile carriers. 
Apple had promised to allow any app onto the store that met their terms of service, which barred pornographic and malicious content, among other things, but made no mention of a quality bar. And developers could set their own price on each app they released, a price that could be as low as zero or 99 cents. Developers would get 70% of whatever revenue their apps make. Apple would take the other 30%, ostensibly to cover the costs of running the store. Everything sounded fantastic, and the apps demoed on stage at the media event looked brilliant. But the question on everybody's lips was how much will these things actually cost? What will the price of a typical app be? I, I guess with pricing for a new product, it's all, people are always looking back to an equivalent, kind of similar product to see what they can price against. For games pricing, people didn't only look to Java mobile games, which cost about $5 each, but also to Nintendo's Game Boy family of handheld consoles. Game Boy games generally cost around $30 or so. And so people were guessing, and they were also basing it off of what other apps for other, other mobile phones at the time were. And the general consensus was it was going to be about $24 to buy a game for the iPhone. That's Brian Greenstone. He was running a small Mac game company called Pangea Software, which made family-friendly 3D platformers and arcade-style games that were bundled with every new Mac purchase. The App Store announcement had got him very excited. He'd been dreaming of making games for a handheld device since he entered the industry as a professional back in the early 90s, where he was a programmer on Super Nintendo games. Matter of fact, when, when Visual Concepts first hired me, it was not to do Super Nintendo games. It was originally going to be for the Atari Lynx. So the Lynx was a disaster. <laughs> the, Lynx, the Lynx, I think, was the last thing Atari did before they went out of business. It wasn't, although they killed it at the same time as their failed Jaguar game console, which was the last thing that they did before they went out of business. But we'll leave those stories for another day. You know, it was a hand, it was a color handheld Game Boy competitor. It was actually a really good piece of hardware, but I don't know what happened. You know, Atari they just didn't manage themselves right, and they it, it went to put. But that's what I was hired to do, and that's what I wanted to do. And so I went just full in, full in on on the uh, iPhone OS stuff in 2008 because that is what I had wanted to do for. 10 plus years, probably 15 years I've been on my to-do list. Apple asked Brian to be part of their keynote presentation at the Worldwide Developers Conference in June, shortly before the App Store launch, along with representatives from Sega and various other companies. But he still had to decide on a price for his launch games. He had a touch-controlled version of Pangea's Mac game Enigma and a tilt-controlled version of Chromag Rally, a caveman-themed kart racer. And so I was talking with the guys from Sega and we're like, man, what are you, what are you guys going to do? And they're like, I don't know. What are you going to do? And I said, I have no idea. Why don't we figure this out by tomorrow so that we can, we can make sure that our numbers match when we give our speech or when we give our presentation. So, so that night we, we both did some research. Um, the Sega guys went back to the office and they asked around, you know, what would you guys pay for, for monkey ball? And I went home and I started, you know, asking around my friends, what would you pay for Enigma on the phone? And the numbers that both Sega and I got were the same. People all said they'd pay 
$15. So like, okay, $15 it is. And we, we agreed. That's what we're going to say. So we had our, our presentations all, all figured out. And, you know, when we do these presentations at WWDC, it goes through various vetting processes. Uh, you know, you have to do your presentations in front of various VPs and, and then in front of Steve Jobs and all that. So we go in and we get called in, you know, one at a time to give our presentation in front of the, the VPs and Steve. And at the end, Steve says to me, he says, uh, he says, so, you know, how much are you going to charge for this? And we said, uh, 15. And he goes, that's too high. And I said, really? And he goes, yeah. I said, well, I mean, how much do you think it should be? And he said, uh, he said well, it should probably be between four and seven dollars. And, and to me, that was, that was outrageous. And I couldn't, I mean, are you kidding me? A video game? For four to seven dollars, I mean, I thought it would destroy the industry. You can't do that. I mean, Game Boy games for you know those are thirty bucks, and you get a a Sony or a, a, a whatever the hell thing is. Anyway, Nintendo, those things are fifty, sixty, seventy dollars. You can't possibly have a game for you know a handful of dollars. But anyway, you know, I didn't want to say that directly to Steve and piss him off. So I just kind of nodded my head and left. And then when we went out to the little room where everybody was. Everybody had the same thing to say, which is what Steve told everybody the same thing. So I, I talked to the Sega guys again, and, and they said that we both agreed that there's no way in hell we were going down to 4 or $7 for a video game. Are you crazy? There's no especially them. I mean, they were selling Monkey Ball on all these other platforms. They can't undercut all of the other platforms by selling it for basically nothing on this one platform. So we agreed that we'd meet Steve somewhere in the middle at $10. Um, so that's what we announced when we did the WWC presentation was 10 bucks. The story will continue after this very brief interlude. I just wanted to take a moment to ask that if you're enjoying the show, please consider sharing it on social media and signing up for a monthly pledge on Patreon, where I'll be posting interruption-free episodes and lots of bonus stuff. Head to lifeandtimes.game slash Patreon for more information. I'll remind you again later, but for now, on with the show. John Jordan thinks there were really three classes of early iPhone game developers. There were the big companies, your EAs and Segas, that could spend a hundred grand on, on testing a new market and not care all that much about money. The App Store had exciting potential for them, but its installed base was too small to devote serious resources. Then there were the existing mobile game developers who were unhappy with the world of Java Brew Publishing, where they had no control over things like pricing. And finally, you had established Mac-focused companies like Pangea and Freeverse Software, which were unknown in the wider games industry, but they had a great reputation within Apple's ecosystem for their utilities and for quirky games like Freeverse's Burning Monkey Solitaire series and Pangea's Bugdom and Nanosaur 3D platform games. They were excited by the iPhone and dove in headfirst, eager to be a part of the smartphone revolution. Each of those three kind of groups of people had quite different ideas about what success was. For the, for the Segas and EAs, they didn't really care because just the market wasn't big enough. It was a sub-10 million units. Of, of kind of hardware out there. So it just you know, it wasn't big enough for those big companies to, to see jump in sales. But for the other two, it, it, you know, if you suddenly had a hit, and if you had a hit, certainly a kind of, you know, five or $10 um, kind of price point, those were quite small companies. And so suddenly like another 
you know, hundred, two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars of sales from a game was was quite big. And actually, quite quickly, what you saw, I think, was the kind of um, creative momentum for the iPhone kind of dropped away from the big companies, dropped away from the EAs and Segas, and it became the free versus the Pangeas really in, in the early days who were kind of really driving the creative momentum. The App Store went live on July 10th, 2008, with around 500 apps. A third of them were games. Most were priced between $5 and $10, although a quarter or so were free. Super Monkey Ball was there, as was Pangea's Chromag Rally and Enigma, and Free Versus, three launch titles. They had Big Bang Sudoku, Jared, the Butcher of Song, and the first 3D game designed from the ground up for the iPhone, Wingnut's Moto Racer, which was later renamed Moto Chaser. Brian Greenstone says he'd expected Pangea's two launch games to sell around 10 to 20,000 copies on iPhone over their lifetime. Apple thought he was being pessimistic. They told him they think he'll do 50 to 100,000 copies. Well, uh, we did that many in about the first 24 hours or so. It, it was... Apple had no idea that it was going to be as big as it was. I mean, it took them as much by surprise as everybody else. I mean, even Steve, obviously. I mean, Steve knew that the prices were going to end up being lower, but even he didn't fully grasp the size of what was to come. Um, So, you know, at $10 a pop and with, you know, I don't know what we did in the first 24 hours, we did over 50,000 copies. I mean, it was basically half a million dollars in a day. (laughs) <laughs> you know, minus Apple's 30%. So the App Store opened in July. Uh, so, there, so it was only, you know, it wasn't even a full half a year, right? It was less than less than half a year left. And in that amount of time, we did $4 million in sales in that tiny amount of time. And, and the majority of it was in the first couple of days because we were able to charge $10. But within the first week, it was clear what was going on, right? That, that visibility was everything. And Apple hadn't figured the system out yet. Everyone was looking at top-selling charts to tell them what was worth buying. There was a top paid chart and a top free chart. And about a year later, there'd also be a top grossing chart. In the meantime, besides those two charts, you had the option to browse by category or search by keyword. And both charts were based solely on download numbers. An early chatter from developers suggested that Download numbers drastically declined as you dropped down and then off the top 100 chart. So if high placement on the top paid chart meant greatly increased sales numbers, and if increased sales numbers meant higher placement on the top paid chart, then it was only logical to lower the price to encourage more sales. It didn't take long for an influx of low-quality apps to hit the store at rock bottom prices. For $1, you could buy all the far taps and virtual pints of beer that you ever dreamed of. It was exciting to see that software publishing had been so fully democratized, but it made business really tough for everyone trying to sell high-quality apps. Choke apps, ringtone apps, short-lived shovelware was taking over the top 10 list. Greenstone tried dropping Pangea's games down to $7 to raise sales volume so that they could stay in the top rankings. 
Then he went down to $5 when it didn't make enough of a difference. But it was clear that that was, we were chasing ourselves at that point, you know, trying to maintain our top 10 ranking while still making money. So at one point I said, listen, you know, this is clearly going to hell. (laughs) So uh, I believe it was at the end of November. I want to say it was right after Thanksgiving. It was probably November 26th, November 27th, something like that. And I said, what the hell? And I lowered the price of our game. We had several of them at that. Actually, no, no, we had we had five games out at that point. I lowered them all. It was either to a dollar or to two dollars. I forget exactly how much we lowered them to, but it worked because it shot all five of our games into the top ten apps. <laughs> Matter of fact, to this day, uh, we are only one of two companies to ever have five apps simultaneously in the top ten apps list. Uh, we did it first, and then um, EA did it. EA, uh, several, many years ago, uh, had uh, five or six of their games all in the top 10 apps at the same time. But anyway, it worked. You know, we made another fortune. I mean, we, we made, we were making, when we did that, uh, I remember we were making $47,000 a day by, by lowering the price to $1 or $2. But then I get a phone call from Apple. <laughs> and Apple's all upset that I did this. Because at the time, Apple considered, you know, dollar apps to be fart apps. The only apps that cost a dollar in the app store were gun apps and fart apps. You know, real apps like Enigma and Chromag Rally, oh no, you know, those don't those aren't a dollar. Those are those are the good apps. Those have to be five to ten dollars. Um, so they got all upset with me for doing that because right after I did that, uh, within forty eight hours or so. Everybody saw what happened, and everybody started lowering their prices to $1 to $2 to try to do the same exact thing. And so up to this day, Apple still blames me personally for starting the price war. But (laughs) I keep telling them, I say, I didn't start the war. All I did was fire the first shot in a war that had already started. Because if it wasn't me, it was going to be somebody else within a couple of days that did the exact same thing. I was just smart enough to do it first so that we made a ton of money off of it. But anyway, the, 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 pricing, <clears throat> the pricing sucks, I'll be honest with you. I, I, Apple should have never, ever allowed apps to, to be priced anywhere less than $2.99. Uh, $3 should have been the minimum that you could do. Enigma's 810,000 sales in 2008 netted Pangea $1.5 million. In December, Apple announced that Chromag Rally and Enigma were the 6th and 7th best-selling iPhone apps of the year. Super Monkey Ball was 5th. Free versus Moto Chaser had 3rd. Top was a virtual koi pond. Down in 10th was iBeer, a virtual pint of beer that you could quote-unquote drink by tilting your iPhone. Seriously. Come April, as the App Store neared 1 billion apps, Apple revealed a revised all-time top-selling paid apps list. This time, Crash Bandicoot Nitro Kart 3D was first, with Enigma third, iBeer up to fifth, 
and Super Monkey Ball down to 11th. Most of the top 20 best-selling apps were games, and of them, there were 8 at 99 cents. The two most expensive were Nitro Kart and Monkey Ball, both listed at the time for $5.99. Koi Pond had an estimated 900,000 sales at some $600,000 or so in revenue after Apple's 30% cut. Down at 19th, artillery game I Shoot had 380,000 downloads at $2.99, enough to earn its sole creator $800,000. By this point, to get into the top 100 paid apps charts, a developer needed some 12 to 1,500 sales a day. To get there, it seemed you needed to be priced low. 99 cents was an impulse buy, whereas somehow $1.99 or anything higher was not. So developers of premium priced apps kept using the elastic pricing approach, where they'd go down to 99 cents or free for a day or a weekend and then return to regular price and hope to ride a, a wave of visibility and word of mouth buzz all the way to a big payday. Services like Free Apper Days sprung up to help developers advertise these short-term discounts to hundreds of thousands of subscribers. Here's John Jordan again. And for a while, and actually for a fairly long while, you know, a year or so, those kind of were marketing services did very well um but then of course it, they kind of they're quite expensive to use because developers would effectively they, they they might pay a certain amount of money up front but effectively they were paying like a rev share so they, they would have to give these services kind of access to their analytics to prove over the say a two-week period how much they'd how much the marketing service had generated for them and then the, the service would get you know a cut of that as well and obviously with all these things, if it did work, and it did work in, in the short term, more people started to use it. So they then they started to kind of bloat their services and have more than one free Apple game a day. So then the kind of the, the effectiveness of that kind of service started to die off and there were there were more than once someone had invented it, it wasn't you know rocket science to just kind of copy it. So there were various different companies doing these various different services. And in the end the kind of ending was could you could you make a successful game mobile game for 99 cents because that's kind of where you ended up no matter what kind of marketing services you used you know could you be successful at 99 cents um and that was really where i think a lot of the companies you know for all three of those original starting type of companies like the the eas and the segas the proper game companies found it hard to you know to make a profitable business at 99 cents um, the kind of the, the Pangeas and the Freedverses, they were quite small companies, but they weren't they weren't making kind of proper, you know, innovative games. So they found a problem with it. And so the kind of some of the indie startups could still manage to do that because they had very low costs. But basically, no one, no one was happy with the App Store running at effectively selling games for 99 cents, apart from consumers. So consumers loved it clearly, and still at that stage, you know, the iPhone as a, as a as a hardware was still selling more and more and more. And, and obviously um, when the iPad came in, that was more expensive. So you could, people were doing iPhone, the iPhone version will be 99 cents and the iPad version will be, you know, 199 or 299 because that was a more expensive piece, piece of hardware. So you were assuming those consumers could spend more money on a, a bigger kind of graphical experience. But you kind of quite quickly hit this kind of rock bottom 
uh, and that was kind of in terms of paid games, that was where you ended up. The answer to the 99 cents question for most companies, especially in the game space, was inevitably no. One or two dollars per sale, less Apple's take, was unsustainable. It relied on hits, on huge volume. And not even the best could be sure of a hit every time. The only way to reliably make money on mobile, it turned out, was microtransactions. In-app purchases, which became available on iOS in 2009, and which John Jordan believes were the most important thing to happen in the history of mobile games. Often we think, you know, Apple were the, Apple are these kind of brilliant innovators. Um, and when it comes to microtransactions, the, the Japanese mobile market has had microtransactions for 20 years. I remember talking to, to um, some of the guys in, from the Korean publisher, um, uh, Gameville, who do a lot of kind of quite heavy RPGs. And remember talking to them when, when iOS 3 came out and microtransactions were introduced. And they said, well, we've been releasing um, the games we release in Korea on our mobile phone networks there. They've had in-app purchases for years. And to release the iOS version, we've been stripping out the in-app purchases to release them on iOS up to this point. So there were other kind of, um, kind of mobile ecosystems that were much more advanced than um, than the App Store at that point. So to, to a degree, the App Store was kind of catching up where where more advanced markets were already, you know, finding success. Now, in 2017, as we sit on the eve of iOS 11 and iPhone 8 and a major App Store redesign, paid mobile games are rare. But when they do exist, they tend to still be at or close to a dollar. With notable exceptions like MC Asher-inspired puzzle game Monument Valley that showed that higher pricing can still work if a developer does everything right and gets a bit of luck. The dominant model today is free-to-play, and while a lot of companies are earning a sustainable revenue stream from it, free-to-play is dominated by a few gigantic billion-plus dollar companies. It's often people in the industry say mobile games, it's very young, it's very young. We're only been going 10 years. And I would go, it's not very young, it's been going 10 years. Um, you know, 10 years is not, is, not, is not young. And we can kind of clearly see the winners of, of the App Store era. There's this, like Supercell, clearly a winner of the App Store you know, era. You can't really argue about that. You know, was, hadn't made any games, success, hadn't even launched, well, it launched a Facebook game. Um, unsuccessfully and then has launched some very successful mobile games clearly worth 10 billion dollars equally you know mz machines owner as it was as it was known has has two now three very successful free play mobile games um probably also worth about 10 billion dollars you know these these are these are companies who have only really operated in the mobile era and have become enormous companies and i think um for all the creativity in mobile games it's quite clear what the top line who the top line winners are and now we know in free-to-play mobile games, you can do match-free games. They work really well. You can do kind of menu-based, kind of alliance-heavy structured games like MZ. I guess Supercell gets a little bit different, but it's making very polished, very quick games that are very obvious in what you're doing. I mean, Supercell's genius is it makes very complex genres, mashes them up, and then makes them very clear to the user what you're going to do. And you can just play them you know, for a couple of minutes. I guess in terms of the future, I kind of think that 
um, not just for the App Store, but for mobile games in general, um, the free-to-play era is played out to a degree. Virtual reality and augmented reality, or some other technological innovation that we don't know about yet, may shake things up in the years to come. But for now, this is our mobile gaming reality. Big business doing monetized free-to-play. Hobbyists doing low-priced paid apps. Unable to transition to professional because the race to the bottom, early in the app store's life, all but killed consumer willingness to spend more than a few dollars to buy an app, no matter how good it is. And then there's the odd plucky indie developer that manages to stand out with one business model or the other on word-of-mouth buzz, just on the strength of the design and creativity of their product. That's our reality. Unless Apple changes everything. John Jordan writes about mobile gaming at Pocket Gamer and PocketGamer.biz. Brian Greenstone decided to retire from game development last year. Pangea's games are still supported and available, but he now spends his time selling fine minerals and fossils. He only made one major splurge after making his App Store fortune, the 2009 Aston Martin Vantage. The life and times of video games is created entirely by me, Richard Moss, with additional music licensed through Creative Commons from Slovakian composer Andrzejczyk's album Nostalgic and Procrastination, and Chiptunes artist Visager's two Songs from an Unmade World albums. If you enjoyed the show, please tell other people about it. It will also help if you leave a rating and review on iTunes or Overcast or whatever podcast app you use. The show is on Twitter at Life and Times VG and on Patreon at patreon.com slash Life and Times of Video Games. You can also find links to everything through the website lifeandtimes.games. Coming up next week, we have Air Fight, the story of the first flight simulator game. My name is Richard Moss. Thanks for listening. <laughs>